Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. The Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked round, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Well, Isabel, thanks for reading for us, and uh, a warm uh, welcome again. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Do keep that passage open. We're going to be looking at it together for the next little bit of time, and uh, I'm going to pray that the Lord would help us as we look at it. And so, here again the words of verse 7. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Our Father God, we pray that as we... Um, see and hear more of the Lord Jesus in Mark's gospel, that you would indeed help us to listen to him this morning in his name. Amen. Well, what are you hoping for this year? Uh, What are you dreaming of? What are you aspiring to? What are your hopes and dreams for 2020? I asked uh, my friends on Facebook what they were hoping for this year. Here were some of the replies. There were the the light-hearted responses. Uh, One of my friends said he was hoping for more surfing. Uh, There was a new parent who said they were hoping for more than three hours sleep at some point soon. Uh, Another friend said they were hoping that Crystal Palace would win the Premier League. I think that ship may have sailed by now, but there you go. Uh, there were the, uh, the more serious responses. Uh, a friend said they were hoping for a less complicated year than 2019. Someone else for more stability. A couple I know uh, earnestly hoping and longing for a child. Uh, there were the big scale global kind of things. A sensible resolution to Brexit, someone put. Uh, an end to the fires in Australia. And hearteningly, there were some who put that they were looking and hoping for gospel growth of different kinds this year. What are you hoping for in 2020? 
Uh, We're returning to the book of Mark, uh, and we're coming in about halfway through this January. Uh, Last spring, uh, we were looking at um, sort of the first half of Mark's gospel together, and uh, we're back there now uh, looking at the second half. Um, The first disciples of Jesus so far in Mark's gospel had become convinced that in Jesus they had found someone who could bring about all of their hopes and dreams, someone who could bring their hopes to reality. Uh, Jesus had shown in the first eight chapters of Mark a stunning power and authority over the natural forces that terrify us, over jaw-dropping evil, over sickness, even over death itself. Jesus had, had begun to show them that he was a man who could make the world right again and bring about all that they hoped and dreamed for. Best of all, Jesus claimed that he could fix our broken relationship with God. That deep yearning that we have in our hearts for transcendence, that that people search for in art and, and music, in travel, exotic experience, relationships. Jesus had claimed to be the one who could forgive us, who could reconcile us to God and give us the relationship with our creator that our hearts ache for. And just a week before the events in this passage, back in Mark 8, verse 29, maybe you can see that just um, just over the column from uh, the passage that was read for us. Uh, Peter, one of the disciples, had said that they believed that Jesus was the Christ, the great Son of Man, the long-promised King, who they believed would bring all that they hoped and dreamed for. But immediately after Peter had said this, Jesus had stunned him by saying two deeply shocking things. Firstly, Jesus had said in verse 31 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed before rising again to glory. He'd said that for him, there would be death on a cross before the crown of glory. There would be suffering before all of the hopes and dreams would be fulfilled. But more shocking still, he'd said to the disciples, down in verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus had said that to follow him wouldn't mean their hopes and dreams coming true right now. It would mean a cross. It would mean losing their life now in the hope of gaining it in a future glory. And it wasn't what the disciples were expecting at all. Peter had even rebuked Jesus over this. And let me just say, in my experience, one of the main reasons that people turn from Jesus, or that they never trust him for the first time, is that following him seems to be too costly to them. There are things they don't want to give up hopes and dreams that they're they're not willing to lay to one side to follow Jesus. The, The cross seems too big for an eventual crown that they're not even sure that they'll receive. 
And this morning, as we come to this little passage, the, um, the transfiguration, we're going to be shown, we're going to see and hear together through the eyes of the eyewitnesses why Jesus is worth following wherever he takes you and whatever it costs you. Why it's worth trusting Jesus and going his way, even if it seems to crush your hopes and dreams for 2020. Uh, The first thing we see in the passage in front of us is a vision of Jesus' glory. Uh, If you're a note taker, that's our first heading, a vision of Jesus' glory. Have a look at verse 2 again with me. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Now, that word transfigured, uh, it's a word that means transformed or physically changed. I feel like all of my children's toys at the moment change shape. They transform from one thing into another. And that's basically all that that word means. He was physically changed in front of them. But the way he was changed is truly remarkable. I love the way that, um, as Mark writes this, he's struggling to describe it. He has to almost say what it's not rather than what it is. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone could, could bleach them. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. It's been a while since we've had a really bright day. But uh, that experience of going out from a dark room into the brightness of daylight, and you just have to blink and almost kind of turn your eyes away. And it's it's as if what they see here is Jesus so dazzlingly white, they almost have to turn their eyes away, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And I don't think that's an accidental phrase there, anyone in the world, because what they're seeing here is Jesus in his heavenly glory. Jesus, as he walked about in Israel in the first century in Palestine, looked and sounded like an ordinary man. He had no beauty, we're told, to attract us to him. In Mark 6, the crowd say, but but we know his parents. We know this man. And yet here, just for a time, the disciples see Jesus as he really is in his heavenly splendor, in his glory. I know I've told some of you before, I used to live with a guy who was quite fond of making chocolate brownies. And it was one of the great, um, the great experiences of living with this guy, that when you, um, when you got home and opened the front door, you would just be hit with this smell of chocolate brownie in the oven. And, um, and if you were me, you'd, uh, you'd creep into the kitchen and just take a glance through into the oven and just see the, um, the chocolate brownie that was coming, the, the, the glory that was waiting for you. If I can put it like this, um, I never quite got away with having a taste ahead of the main event. But, but do you see what I mean? You've got this sort of smell and sight of, of something good that was coming, And what these three men have as they go up the mountain is a kind of foretaste, a glimpse, a dazzling 
preview of the glory of Jesus in the resurrection, the divine glory of Jesus as he's raised from the dead. And again, of the divine glory of Jesus when he returns in all his heavenly glory. We read in Revelation of a description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, in his dazzling white splendor, returning to judge and to save, to, to restore the world to all that it was meant to be. And here is just a little foretaste, a preview of that glory. Uh, notice um, who's there in the vision. Verse 4, there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And we're not told exactly the significance of Elijah and Moses being there. They were both great prophets of the Old Testament. They both pointed forward to the coming of Jesus. But they both too experienced something of God's heavenly glory. Moses went up Mount Sinai. The Lord told him after six days to go up the mountain and the heavenly glory of God came down. And Moses was given just a glimpse of it. And we're told that the glory of God sort of reflected from Moses' face when he came down the mountain. And here is Jesus. But the glory of God shines forth from him. Here is one who is the glory of God himself. One who can bring the heavenly glory, all that we hope and dream for, realized in a coming king. And of course, Elijah was a man taken up to heaven. And here, these two heavenly figures stand beside him, authenticating him. A foretaste, a preview, a a smell of the brownie as you walk in the door of the heavenly glory of Jesus that is to come. Now listen, there are lots of... um, There are lots of religions and philosophies that will offer you glory of one kind or another. Whether it's your best life now, or heaven, or nirvana, or whatever it is that you might hope or dream for, there are lots of people who will offer you that if you go with their philosophy or adopt their ritual. But what we have here is historical evidence, proof in the eyes of witnesses that Jesus really can deliver that kind of glory. This is not a story or myth or fable. These three real historical men claim that they saw a slice of the glory that is to come up the mountain and that they saw it again when Jesus rose from the dead. You see, Christianity is not a a sort of um, a religion of, of mystery, of imagined myth, of ritual and rule and that sort of thing, but a, a historical religion, a religion of evidence. Uh, Peter, one of those three men, wrote near the end of his life in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. 
we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. See, we see very clearly in the rest of this passage that Jesus' first followers didn't understand it at the time. But Mark writes this down for us so that we can be certain that when Jesus says that heavenly glory is to come, he really can deliver it. Here is the divine man who can bring all our hopes and dreams to pass. And here is a foretaste of that glory. And let me say, if you struggle with that, if that's something that you're not reconciled to yet, then let me um, commend again the Encounters course that's starting quite soon. A big part of that will be looking at the evidence for Jesus that he really is this figure of glory, the great son of man. But here is just one of the pieces of that evidence, a vision of Jesus' glory. I wonder if you noticed, though, Peter's response to Jesus in verse 5. It's fascinating. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Mark tells us he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. They were literally terrified by this vision of divine glory. Uh, They don't know what to do with this. Here is a man who can bring three friends into the glory of God, who is the glory of God. And so Peter says, "Uh, let's put up three tents. Okay, three tents. And it's not as crazy as it sounds. Because, of course, in the Old Testament, at Sinai, that's precisely what God told Moses to do. Build a tabernacle, a tent, and the glory of God will come down and live in it. But here we see that Peter's barking up completely the wrong tree because a voice from heaven appears from the cloud and declares, verse 7, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. You see, it won't be a case of God's glory coming down and staying in a tent. No, Peter Listen to how Jesus says you will receive the glory. This is my son. Listen to him. Now, what what is it that they need to listen to exactly? And that brings us to um, the conversation on the way down the mountain, the the second heading, a lesson about Jesus' suffering. A lesson about Jesus' suffering. Now, um, I don't know if you remember the beast from the east when it swept in about two years ago. Do you remember that? The, um, the terrible cold weather that swept in um, across the country. I think I must have been the only person in Sheffield who wasn't really following the news at that point in time because it, it, it passed me by that it was coming in right until the moment that it arrived, really. I, um, I was down at Sheffield Hallam University in the centre of the city. I was going to an event there and I just parked my car um, in the city centre when the first few snowflakes started to fall, and I, and I thought to myself, ah, oh, it'll be fine, I'll go to the event, and then I'll, I'll get going again afterwards. By the time I left, my car was basically a giant snowball, and um, there were just feet of snow everywhere. Now, I, I tried to get home by, uh, by, every, um, by every technical means that I thought that I could. I scraped down my car, and, uh, and I tried to drive it to get home, but in the end, the only way... The only way back 
was to abandon my car and trudge all the way along Fulwood Road back home from the city centre in the snow. And I was bewailing how underprepared I was for that. But it was the only way. Now, Jesus has said to his disciples, just before in Mark 8, the only way to glory for him will be to go through the cross. Mark 8, verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. He must be killed and after three days rise again. See, the only way that Jesus can be the man who not only um, is um, beaming forth heavenly glory, but who brings three friends with him into the place of God, the only way that he can bring about all our hopes and dreams is to walk the path of the cross. Jesus had to die as a sacrifice to bear the punishment for the way that we've treated God in our place so that we might be able to walk into the glory of God with him. He had to go to death before glory, a cross before a crown, suffering before the fulfillment of hopes and dreams. And that's really the issue that is the center of the conversation as they walk down the mountain. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Do you see that? Don't tell anyone until death and resurrection has occurred, suffering and glory. The disciples don't understand. Verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. They just have no idea what Jesus is going on about. And they ask a question. Again, it's quite a sensible question, really. Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? You see, the Old Testament prophet Malachi had said, had promised, that there would be a figure like the prophet Elijah who would come and get people ready, and then God would come. And so it's a sensible question. Why do they say Elijah must come first? Mark has been showing us, back in Mark chapter 1, that John the Baptist was that Elijah figure. And so Jesus says, verse 12, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. That is, gets people ready. But there's something wrong with their timeline of Elijah and then glory Because look again at verse 12. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? You see, the Old Testament doesn't just say that the Son of Man will bring, that Jesus will bring glory, all our hopes and dreams. It also says that he will die as a sacrifice on a cross. You might read Isaiah 53. And see there how clearly the Old Testament predicts and promises the suffering and death of Jesus in our place. See, Jesus says, your timeline is wrong, disciples. The only way to glory, the only path, is through the cross. And it's not just for Jesus, because verse 13, I tell you, Elijah has come, John the Baptist, and they've done with him everything they wished just as it is written about him. 
See, John the Baptist, the great Elijah figure, was a true follower of Jesus. And in Mark 6, we read that rather than being accepted by the establishment, King Herod had had him brutally murdered. And remember what Jesus said in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Lose his life to save it. Lay it down to gain it. First the cross and then the crown. First suffering and then glory. What does Jesus mean when he says, deny yourself? In verse 34, notice he doesn't say deny yourself things. You know, in January, you might deny yourself chocolates and ice cream and all of the other good things you've enjoyed all through Christmas. But Jesus says deny yourself. Deny your self-rule. Deny yourself being in charge of your life. Hand it over to me. I've heard it put like this. Many people um, are happy to, um, to drive through life with Jesus sort of in the passenger seat, giving them a bit of good advice from time to time. But Jesus says, hand me the keys and let me drive. Let me direct your life. And here is the direction I will lead you in. Take up your cross. Lose your life to gain it. See, every Christian here will know that following Jesus is costly. It's hard. It means letting Jesus be in charge of your life. For these three men who saw Jesus' glory on the mountain, all three of them were killed for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was talking to someone recently who'd become a Christian from a Muslim family and whose whole family had disowned them. It was very moving, really. Uh, they said to me, Jesus is everything to me. I've left everything for him. And for that person, it was quite literally true. They'd left everything for Jesus. And it may not cost us that much to let Jesus sit in the driver's seat and drive our lives and direct our lives. It, it may not cost us death itself or disownment by our whole family, but it certainly will cost. It'll cost us our, our comfort if we start speaking to people about Jesus. It'll cost our reputation. It may cost a relationship, an ungodly habit. It may cost me letting go of refusing to forgive someone or some other ungodly attitude. Because if we deny ourselves, if we let Jesus drive, he will drive us the way of the cross. And so let me say, if you're here and you're just looking in on the Christian faith, I, I want to say this very clearly and plainly. Following Jesus will cost you everything. Following Jesus means letting him direct your life in every area. But the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain and the resurrection of Jesus after three days in the grave, reassure us of this fact. It is worth giving anything to follow Jesus because the way of the cross is the only way to the crown. The only way to glory is through the suffering of following Jesus.
And Jesus is the only one who can deliver all of our hopes and dreams. We see that in this this smell of the brownie as you walk through the door, this vision of Jesus in all his heavenly glory. Listen, this year, 2020, following Jesus might actually cost you the things that you hope for, for this year. Following Jesus might mean giving up and laying down your fondest dream for this year. But this vision of Jesus and the word that comes with us assures us that it will be worth it because of the way of the cross is the only way to the crown. And Jesus can deliver. For it was Jesus who went the way of the cross for us and rose again in glory. And so anyone who loses their life for his sake and for the gospel will save it and enjoy eternal life with God, a new world, and all of our hopes and dreams fulfilled. And so perhaps a better question than what you're hoping for in 2020 is what are you hoping for for eternity? Because Jesus is the man to deliver. Let me pray. Loving Father God, we pray that this morning you would indeed help us to listen to your son about the route to glory and to all our hopes and dreams. Help us to be those who trust his cross and who hand our lives over to follow him in the way of the cross because we know that he can deliver on all those hopes when he returns. In his name, amen.